Hey there, this is Damien Blinkinsall with The Quantified Body. This is the show where we look at cutting edge tools and tactics to improve our body's health, performance, and longevity. And we do this with a quantified perspective, always looking for data such as biomarkers for real evidence. So we avoid the trap of following anecdotal opinion and just hoping for results. But we also don't wait for science to prove these tools without a doubt by a gold standard double blind studies which can take many years to surface. Instead we tried to find a middle ground on this show looking for biomarkers and data that you can use to track and give you more confidence in results and what you're doing. We have guests that range from academic researchers and experts in the biomarkers, the tools and the tactics to real live experimenters who have done their own biohacking experiments and tracked biomarkers to show their results. Today we're looking at biofeedback using heart rate variability. We're looking at its use primarily to reset the nervous system and use as an antidote to different types of stressors, whether it be modern day chronic stress, AKA the all time on syndrome, or infections or other problems in our lives. We compare the use of breathing techniques to other tools like meditation to improve HRV and thus the biofeedback aspect of it. We'll also talk about how biofeedback enables us to learn what yogis historically spent decades learning in a matter of weeks. And this can be applied to athletic performance, productivity, health issues such as headaches, irritable bowel syndrome, insomnia, and asthma, and inflammation, and on and on as you'll see today. Today's guest is Richard Gewirtz, PhD Professor of Health Psychology at Alliance International University. He's been working in HRV biofeedback for nearly 30 years, and he's published over 40 papers on biofeedback during that time in areas such as mind-body feedback, stress disorders, clinical protocols for biofeedback, anxiety disorders, and autonomic control. It's a great interview. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy it too. If there is a topic that you would love us to cover on this show, and we haven't done it yet, then please reach out to me. You can contact me via email at damien, D-A-M-I-E-N, at thequantifiedbody.net, or just hit me up on Twitter at, at biohacks, and let me know what you'd like, and I'll try and get it on the show for you. To get the show notes from today and any other episode, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes and click on the episode you want and it's all there. Interview transcript and pre-feed download, links to absolutely everything and summaries of the biomarkers and tools and tactics. I know it gets tricky on this show, so we put all of the details in there summarized, simplified for you, so make it a bit easier to follow. Lastly, if you want all of that bundled into a newsletter, which you get automatically anytime a show comes out, just head over to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and it's done. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the quantified body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real world results, improving bodies and improving lives. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. So I wanted to get a quick background behind what you do. How did you learn to do what you do, these studies and this area? How did you first get into it and learn to do it? Well, I started as an undergraduate studying with a famous psychophysiologist named Peter Lang, who was one of the founders of the field of psychophysiology, which is basically different than neurophysiology because we're looking at physiological measures indicating psychological parameters. 
So in those days, we were measuring heart rate, but not beat by beat heart rate, just average heart rate and muscle tension, temperature, respiration. And um, then I went to grad school and got waylaid a little bit into another topic. But eventually I came back to psychophysiology and began working. I was in Minnesota at the time and I was near the Mayo Clinic. And I ended up working with a guy who's been a lifelong friend, Mark Schwartz, at Mayo Clinic, who was doing biofeedback. It was sort of the beginning days of biofeedback. And in those days, we were doing just muscle tension and temperature and breathing, uh, not even heart rate in those days. That was interesting. We were doing work on chronic pain mostly and then relaxation techniques with finger temperature. So I did that for a number of years, but became a little unhappy with it because it seemed very limiting. And I had a background in heart rate. And as the technology got better, we realized that we could measure heart rate in a much more sophisticated way. And, uh, and actually, in the beginning, I, I was collaborating with Paul Lehrer, my colleague at Rutgers University. And we were sort of fascinated by this. Also, we were good friends with Stephen Porges, who was kind of this polyvagal theory guy. We were fascinated by this idea that the action wasn't in the sympathetic nervous system as much as in the parasympathetic nervous system for day-to-day stress. And that, had, that went against everything we had been doing up till then, which was really calming down the sympathetic nervous system. So as the technology built and we realized there was really an incredible amount of information in the beat-by-beat heart rate, then he and I began developing this idea of looking at beat-by-beat heart rate and feeding it back to people. At the same time, in cardiology, the measurement of a beat-to-beat heart rate was growing rapidly. And so we, we benefited a lot from all of the cardiology research showing that healthy hearts had this very complex, somewhat chaotic-looking pattern to them, and that that represented mostly parasympathetic nervous system. Great. So to take a step back a bit, what, what is biofeedback, and what are the benefits that you're seeking through using that? Well, biofeedback in general is feeding back physiological information to a client or um, subject and having them try to modify their physiology based on what they see, based on either wiggly lines on the screen or some analog, a rocket ship going up or a train moving or some other visual or auditory signal. Uh, In the early days, what we were doing is teaching people to relax their muscles more profoundly than than they might be able to do naturally. And we did that by feeding back information from voluntary muscle activity from electromyograph. And then we used finger temperature because it turned out by learning to warm your hands, you could shut down the sympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic activity produces vasoconstriction. As you learn to vasodilate, you begin to generally accompanies relaxation. So that would, people would focus on their hands to... Yeah, they would focus on mental techniques to warm their hands. It's interesting. And it turned out that they could both cool and warm their hands at will. A colleague of ours, Bob Friedman in Detroit, was interested in Raynaud's disease. So he was starting to look at biofeedback as a way people could learn to warm their hands, even without getting relaxed. They could learn to vasodilate. And he studied the mechanisms of that and actually found fairly detailed mechanisms of how people, they, they warm and cool their hands with different mechanisms. But they could definitely do it. He had medical students, even while playing a game of bridge, that could warm or cool their hands when a signal told them to do it at will. Not a lot, but some degree. And so 
everybody was fascinated by the plasticity idea that, wow, could people could really control their physiological, these are supposed to be non-controllable autonomic phenomena. And so actually the original impetus was Neil Miller's studies in, in 69 that showed that people could control all kinds of autonomic, uh, animals and people could control all kinds of autonomic functions. Although most of that has not been able to be replicated, interestingly enough. But it's a famous study in 69, and we knew, we knew Neil Miller. He was a great pioneer in this field. So even though it hasn't been replicated, it still got us all thinking about control of autonomic phenomena. At the same time, uh, some colleagues, uh, Elmer Green, went to India and studied yogis and showed that yogis had remarkable control of autonomic function. Although we didn't exactly know how they did it at the time, but they certainly could do all kinds of things. They could warm one hand and not the other hand. They could warm one ear and not the other ear. They could do some a trick that looked like they were stopping their heart, which is actually just a, a muscle tension that, that hid the ECG. So they would... Oh, so the ECG wouldn't pick it up because of the way they were beating the heart? Yeah. So it looked like they were actually stopping their hearts. and They weren't, but right. it was still pretty amazing. And they also had great control of heart rate, uh, and they could control heart rate. So it looked like maybe people could learn to control heart rate. And that was our first foray into that idea. Right. Did you ever look into how the yogis had learned that? Was it meditation or mindful? Purely meditation, yeah. Uh, it was... Uh, yeah, various kinds of yogic meditation uh, with a lot of breath, a lot of pranayama. Ah, was this like sort of fire breathing, the fast breathing and things like that? All kinds of breathing techniques. Right. Fast breathing, nasal alternation, nasal breathing, slow breathing. But the thing we eventually discovered was if we asked the yogis to do what they do to get calm and centered, and whatever language we could use for that, they always did the same thing. They always breathed very slowly, somewhere between four and a half and seven breaths a minute. Whatever breath rate they chose, they always used exactly the same breath rate within within a half a breath. And they could do it even during distraction. So one, one of our colleagues had this one yogi who would put skewers through his tongue and through his arm and his neck and still maintain this exact breath rate through the whole thing. Oh. But was he making new holes in himself with those, or is it? Yeah, little tiny holes. But he could do—he oh. could prevent bleeding, and it wasn't a fake because I was right there next to him, and I felt those skewers, and I saw him do it. Wow! I think he learned certain places to put them that didn't bleed, and that would quickly close up again. But they could do this without any outward sign of pain, without any physiology changing. It's just remarkable. So, but then we realized that there was some potential for control and that sort of sort of set us off in this pathway. Great. I actually used a machine where they look at the blood flow in your forehead. And I don't, so I don't know if you've seen that same biofeedback mechanism. You can play this little computer game and it'll go in the right direction when, when you're increasing the blood flow. Yeah. Yeah. So the question about that technique is whether it's really just measuring forehead and uh, dura blood flow, maybe peripheral blood flow, or is it really going deeper into the brain to measure cortical blood flow? And I think it's that's an, that's still to be decided. Right, right. Uh, so the, the claims are that you're getting the first centimeter of the cortex. I don't think that's been shown myself. So, but something varies. There's no doubt about it. You can and people can learn to control it. Um, yeah. So blood flow was one of those techniques that. The yogis could control, 
And uh, I mean, remarkably, sometimes there's one yogi could make one ear get very warm and the other ear stay the same, and then he'd switch ears. Yeah. And how he did that, we could never, he could never tell us. He just willed it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's pretty remarkable. That is physiologically, you're not supposed to be able to do that. There's no evolutionary reason why we should be able to control an autonomic function like blood flow. So somehow the brain has could learn to do this through some remarkable meditative techniques. Wow. Yeah, this is pretty spectacular. I didn't know I had these yogic roots because it's always like, I've read a lot of the yogi books and, and some of the books on science of yoga and I wanted to try it, but I wasn't sure there were actual benefits and I didn't know what the benefits were. And it went through all the history and stuff. Quite interesting to see that some of that matches up that spurred on your interest in the area. Right. And actually we're trying to encourage better science because, you know, they think they know it all and they, they can cure everything. And I think the chances are that they've definitely gone to some very remarkable things, but others probably not. Right. Yeah, because it's interesting because it's split into different types of yoga and all of this and which came from the actual practices. And I understand some people injure their, their lower backs and things like that. So there's some parts which seem are not good and other parts which, as you say, could be good. So right. there's a way to go to figure that out. Very tricky for science because they don't have standardized methods. So we just got a, a paper from a group that I, kind of a, a kind of a yoga called um, reflective exercise. Okay. <laughs> and it's come and it's got some Indian name and and it's claiming fantastic results with uh, athletes. I mean, here's just a completely different one. They use reverse diaphragmatic breathing, and with all kinds of claims with really not much science behind it. And I'm an associate editor of the of the journal Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback, and we try to encourage people to send us some good scientific papers. We would love to see what the mechanisms are. So there is just a recent paper just coming out in Frontiers looking at the neurophysiological mechanisms in yoga, a pretty extensive review by a woman named Schmazel, S-C-H-M-A-Z-L. And there's lots to be learned, that's for sure. But I think it's a, it's an area that will be studied more frequently. Great. Yeah, thanks for the, the reference in that paper, too. That'll be interesting to read. So you've been focused on heart rate variability biofeedback for a while. What is that in comparison to what the other stuff we've been talking about? Yeah, so first, the important point for the listeners is that heart rate variability measurement is completely different than heart rate variability biofeedback. So the measurement is a very big field very dominant in parts of cardiology. And the underlying idea is that healthy hearts have tremendous complexity in their patterns of beat-to-beat -beat activity. And you have to actually look at it beat-to-beat -to, -beat to see this. If you do, like you go to the gym and do your average heart rate, that doesn't pick it up at all. So beat-to-beat -beat heart rate uh, is, healthy heart rate is, is characterized by great amounts of complexity, many different oscillators that are contributing to the pattern. And you almost need nonlinear, for some heart disease things, you need nonlinear methods to look at these really complex patterns. And there's a guy named Ari Goldenberger who is pioneering this in cardiology and has amazing results with different heart disease in terms of seeing how it varies. But so the measurement is of interest to us because we do measurements on people with different disorders. And the disorders we're interested in are more psychophysiological or stress-related disorders, and they do show up with poor heart rate variability quite often. Are we talking about RMSSD here, or are we talking about... Yeah, so there's three classes of measurement. One is called time domain measures, which are fairly simple. They just look at the beat-to-beat -beat variability 
the most common one is SDNN, standard deviation of the normal to normal R wave beat. A little more sophisticated one of the same type is called RMSST, root mean square of successive differences. The difference between the two is that the second is an integral measure that seems to be a little bit more dominated by the parasympathetic nervous system. SDNN is simply all forms of variability. It's just a standard deviation of beat-to-beat differences. Quite simple, actually. You just get a, a column of interbeat intervals in milliseconds and take the standard deviation. And that's very, still very widely used and is a powerful epidemiological measure. RMSSD is a little bit more sophisticated because it picks up a bit more of the parasympathetic nervous system. Then there are frequency domain measures, a second class of measures, and that's where you look at how much, what the, frequency, the frequencies are of different rhythms over time in the heart rate. It gets a bit more complex then. So you have to kind of print out a sequence of beat-to-beat heart rates and then look at the frequency characteristics of them. And those frequency characteristics then can be sorted by how much of each frequency. The advantage to that is that in one realm, the high, what's called high frequency power is a pretty good analog to the vagal tone. To the vagus, the tenth cranial nerve is the vagus nerve, which is the parasympathetic nerve that controls heart patterns. And it's a dominant at rest. It's the dominant source of heart patterns. So by actually being able to measure the amount of vagal tone. We can look at things that are of interest to us, especially in psychophysiological disorders or in, or in anxiety disorders, depression, because those things are all diminished in those disorders. So better vagal tone is better and more control. Exactly. Yes. Good vagal tone is, is um, in general. Now, it can be a rebound vagal tone like an asthma, which is too much vagal tone that shuts down the airways. Uh, but that's just a poor amount of flexibility in, in the autonomic nervous system. So the, the goal is very flexible, resilient autonomic nervous system, not necessarily more tone overall, but we do see less tone. We do see less right. vagal tone, however, in a number of disorders. Right. So I think another scenario where high vagal tone may not be a good thing is adrenal fatigue. We've discussed it on the show before. Yeah, that could be. As I say, an asthma, if you get a, a sympathetic surge followed by a giant parasympathetic rebound, it shuts down the airways, and that's not healthy. So there are some situations like that. Some kinds of stress are vagal stress. For instance, if you show somebody a video of a, a fake shop, shop accident where this shop teacher is putting a piece of wood through a circular saw, and we see him about to saw off his finger, People rate that as very stressful, but they don't get a sympathetic surge. They get a parasympathetic surge from that. Interesting. Uh, similarly, for a vagovasal response, people who faint when they see blood or get needles, that's a parasympathetic response, not a sympathetic response. So there are the system is adaptive to what's important. The, the vagal system is trying to preserve blood, keep shut things down. But that can be a stressful response, too. So we don't want it to just think stress is sympathetic. Right. So in terms of the heart rate variability mechanism you're looking at, the, which approach have you been? So now the measurements we use, the same as everyone else. But what we found is that when people, well, I'll tell you an anecdote, but it's a fun anecdote. So Paul Lehrer uh, went to Russia to visit his son, who was, uh, works for the State Department, and there met some people doing some of this heart rate stuff. and. 
They had kids breathing very slowly and improving their vagal tone in front of computers in St. Petersburg. And he couldn't understand why that would work because it seemed like it would kill them if they had asthma. These are all asthmatic kids, but they were getting better. So he tried to understand that better. And eventually that led him to a guy named uh, Evgeny Vashilo, who was the cosmonaut physiologist. And he was observing heart rates and respiration rates in the cosmonauts. And by some chance, one of the cosmonauts was a bit of a meditator. And every day in space, he would suddenly see these patterns of heart rate that were completely unusual. Big peaks and valleys, very slow, big peaks and waves and valleys. And so Evgeny called up and thought the guy was dying or something. And he, he said, no, I'm just meditating. So luckily, he was an, also an engineer and a physiologist, and he began studying these patterns. And at the same time, we were doing the same thing, but we didn't quite understand it. But he helped us understand that at certain slow breathing rates, there is a resonance produced in the cardiovascular system between several different oscillatory systems. The main one is called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. It's like a brake uh, accelerator. And every time you breathe in, the brake goes off. When you breathe out, the brake goes on. If you think about it, it makes sense. When the brake goes off, heart rate speeds up. When the brake goes on, heart rate slows down. And why wouldn't you want heart rate to be speeding up when you have oxygen available for gas exchange? And then when you're breathing out, there's no oxygen available. Actually saves you something like 350 million heartbeats over a lifetime. And this rhythm is called respiratory sinus arrhythmia, RSA. And it's a normal pattern that we can see a normal resting heart rate. But when you breathe somewhere between four and a half and seven breaths a minute, that pattern becomes greatly exaggerated. And what Vashilo figured out and then we built on was that at those rates, you're getting the phase angle between the baroreceptor, the blood pressure rhythm in your body and the breathing rhythm in your body are at exactly at 180 phase angle. So what, what's happening is you're breathing in, heart rate's going up, then it's going up even further because blood pressure is at the exact right angle for blood pressure to go down to make heart rate go up. And then when you breathe out, the same, the opposite happens in the other direction. And so these unexplainable shifts in, in, the, in the cosmonaut, it was like going from 65 beats a minute to 95 beats a minute in each breath cycle. Giant peaks and valleys. And so you can't get that by... People would think, based on the description you gave, you know, I breathe in and it goes up. So I can't like take a really, really big breath, hold it for 20 seconds and then breathe out and get a higher peak and trough. No, no, because uh, you're not, the timing isn't right. It's like a metronome and you have to push in both ends of that metronome to make those big peaks and valleys. You've got to get exactly the right pace to do that. Now, there is an artifact in there. When you breathe more deeply, you do produce an artificial pressure that does make does affect the heart a little bit. That's not really the one we're interested in. We're interested in what happens during restful breathing at certain paces. That's where the benefits seem to come. And in fact, the danger of really deep breathing is people hyperventilate. And then that has uh, negative effects on them. So we really try to prevent hyperventilation at all costs. So yeah, so the exactly the, and, and it turns out that everybody has their own unique pace where breathing in and breathing out at that pace produces the biggest peaks and valley, the exact right phase angle between respiration and heart rate. And when you go into that particular rhythm, 
it seems to have tremendously beneficial effects. This is, again, we often say this is a brand new idea that's 2,500 years old because this is exactly what these yogis were doing. And these yogis have remarkable cardiovascular systems. None of them are hypertensive. We've never found one that's hypertensive. If you take them to high altitude, none of them get altitude sick. Um, at least of the ones that a colleague, um, Luciano Bernardi, is a cardiologist in Italy. And he took a funny story. He went to Bangalore and found 12 yogis and uh, get them, got them to agree to go up to high altitude. And uh, he found out, first thing he found out is that yogis are prima donnas, that they, they wanted to be pampered, <laughs> that they were going to be very stoic and right. not care what material... No, they wanted certain kind of cots, certain kind of food. They didn't like the man. <laughs> so as they drove up to the Himalayas, the Italian crew was all getting sick and altitude sick, having a tough time. And these guys are just complaining about the food. <laughs> uh, so we realized that what they're doing is they're strengthening the bear reflex tremendously by 30%. By practicing every day, you, you strengthen this reflex in the cardiovascular system that has really powerful benefits for cardiovascular health. And that's why they all have fantastic cardiovascular health, because they, they breathe tons of time at these slow breath rates. They also do other breathing techniques, too, but they do do this as well. So are there any studies on heart disease, cardiac issues with them in yogis? Yeah, well, like these yogis don't have heart disease. But, of course, they're also vegetarians. They're, who knows? You know, there's lots. Of right, there's other cofactors, yeah. Yeah, lots of factors. But, no, they don't. It's unknown in, in these people that do this. And there is a lot of evidence now in cardiac rehab that people that get a lot of vagal stimulation, nowadays the, the big money is in vagal nerve stimulators, that that's healing to the heart. Uh, but there's a study at Cleveland Clinic where they're using the HRV biofeedback instead of uh, left ventricular assist devices for people who are getting a transplant. And when they harvest the heart for the transplant, the old heart is much healthier than they would have expected. And it's well known that Vagal input to the heart is repolarizes cells, is healing to the heart, and overloading sympathetic is very detrimental to the heart. Right, which we tend—I I don't know if you've done studies—do we, we tend to be higher sympathetic basis? I mean, everyone talks about it, but I was just wondering what the studies like. If we've actually looked at that, yeah. Well, the, the more chronically stressed your life is, the more sympathetic dominance there is. That generally plays out in poor cardiovascular health. The veterans coming back from the Gulf Wars are and have horrible-looking cardiovascular systems. They look like they're 70 years old, and they've been, they're going through 18 months of chronic stress, and that's really bad for your heart. So there are efforts underway to try to teach them techniques to prevent that. Coming back to the metrics you're, you're using. Well, so the metrics don't apply anymore when you're doing slow breathing. That's a hard thing for people to understand. Mm -hmm. So when you're breathing normally... You want most of the activity to be in the high frequency between 12 and 20 cycles per minute. That's what's called high frequency HRV. But when you're breathing slowly, you're purposely moving out of that into, the, into a lower frequency range. At rest, the low frequency range is indicative of poor vagal tone and high sympathetic activity. But when you're breathing slowly, you're artificially moving into that period of time during that slow breathing. So it's like any kind of exercise. It looks, if you, if you measure someone's physiology when they're exercising physically, they look like they're quite sick during the exercise. Their heart rates are flying high. They're sweating. But, of course, we know that when they stop, then everything gets 
more resilient and more fit. So the same thing is true for the autonomic nervous system. This is kind of exercise for the autonomic nervous system. And as long as you eat on a regular basis, you produce quite a bit of resilience, flexibility, and health in that system. So the metrics fall apart completely when we do the biofeedback. You have to completely ignore them and start looking at a different sort of metric then. And so then what we want is actually all the activity in the low frequency range, which is in the in the four to seven range. So the activity we look at then is what we call a meditator's peak in that range, just a single peak of great magnitude in that low frequency range, which if you took it to, in, if that was your normal breathing, that would be a sign of ill health. But during this slow breathing, it's a, it's a sign of accomplishment of being able to do the technique. So it's a specific frequency. Basically, nearly all your heartbeats are within this specific frequency range. It's exactly where you're breathing. So let's say you're breathing at five breaths a minute, and it'll be a little less than 0.1 hertz. If you're breathing at six breaths a minute, it'll be exactly 0.1 hertz. If you're breathing at seven, it'll be a little bit higher than that, or something in between those. And that's exactly what you see. The breath dominates that peak. And then you want that peak to be the exclusive peak in your heart rate and as high as it can be during the slow breathing. Does it matter exactly where it is? Does it, you just mentioned it. Yeah, for each person it matters because they have to find their resonance frequency. So what, we, what, they, what HeartMath calls coherence, the point of coherence, we call resonance frequency. We think coherence is not exactly the right word because it means two things going together, coherence. And it is two things going together, breath and heart rate, but they don't measure breath. So we think really what you're doing is producing true physical resonance in the system between the baroreceptors and the, and the breathing rhythms. And that's where the big benefits come during that slow breathing. So you said, is it different for different people? You said they have to find... Yeah, we've had some people at, uh, at four and a half breaths a minute, that that's what their peak is. Some at five, some at five and a half, some at six, some at six and a half, some at seven. And we've done various studies to see where the frequencies are. They, they tend to be in the five and a half to six range for most people. Smaller people tend to have a little bit higher frequencies. Very tall people have lower ones. It's like a violin versus a cello. There's different resonances. That's not a perfect relationship. So we, what we do in the biofeedback is we test at every breathing frequency. In the other systems, what you do is just sort of trial and error, try and find something that produces the most coherence, say, but we actually systematically don't do it that way. We systematically go through um, either in some order. I, I like to start at seven, and we do a few minutes of breathing at seven, then six and a half, then six. And at some point, the pattern falls apart. It's too slow. So we go back up another half beat until we find somewhere within a half a beat of the, the proper frequency for that person. Yeah, where they're getting their highest peak control. Exactly, right. and, and the phase angles are correct, and it's also the one with the most, the smoothest heart rate patterns. Right. So that also, that does show up in heart math. They're using a plethysmograph just to look at the beat, the, the pulse beats, but I think it does hold up that the, the smoothest, biggest peak valley differences were, is usually where it'll be. And so you have it like, does that uh, work with smooth breathing as well? Yes, yes. You have to master, and we try to teach diaphragmatic breathing. Smooth, restful diaphragmatic breathing works better. If you overdo it, you hyperventilate, and then you lose the effect. And if you can breathe with your diaphragm, it's much easier to breathe more slowly if you actually get your diaphragm in action. 
I think some people will know the HeartMath device, the M-Wave or the InnerSense, because uh, that's very consumer focused. And with that one, you have a score. You know, basically you can get up to 11, 16 if you're getting to a high. And so it's basically when mapping that to what you're saying is the higher their score means just the higher the peak in the trough. Yeah, well, yes. Or what they do is actually measure the frequencies and then they take the low frequency that's in the range of that breathing divided by all the other frequencies. So it's just a percentage of activity in the low frequency range, but which correlates very highly to the peak trough difference as well. I see. If we compare that to what you do, I don't, do you use a specific device or devices? Yeah, so we use uh, one of many different biofeedback devices. The advantage we have is we can actually look at, we measure four channels usually, or five. So we measure heart rate beat to beat uh, based on an EKG, not, not a PPG, right? So you can either do it based on a pulse. The problem with a pulse is that you have to decide when the pulse starts and stops versus an R wave of an ECG, which is a very distinct event to start and stop the clock. So if possible, it's good to use an ECG, which we do. So we use, an e we use beat to beat heart rate. We use respiration. We have strain gauges for respiration. We look at finger temperature and skin conductance, and sweatiness in the palms of your hands. And all of those are useful indices for what's happening. So if you can, I mean, the, the devices that just use the single channel heart rate, the uh, M-Wave, Mycom Beat, a number of other ones that are out now, are fine, they, they work, but it's certainly not as good an information as if you're using devices that have the four channels. Right, so you're using clinical, is it, are they clinical? Right, right clinical but some machines. of those clinical devices are getting down into the six $700 range now. The ones we use range from about $3,000 to about $11,000. <laughs> Very clinical. So that's not for, <laughs> consumer, not for consumers, but there are a number of devices now that are kind of coming out that are going to be with those four channels that will be ECG, that'll be in the six, $700 range. But for everyday people, the M-Wave device that really works well is the inner balance, the one that runs off an iPhone. Right. It's a beautifully designed device. You can have it on an iPhone is such a tremendous advantage. Right. Yeah, because it's convenient. It works well, but you got to be sitting in front of a PC, which is a big difference. But, it, you know, it's cheap and it works well. Yeah. I've had both the M-Wave and the inner... Was it the inner balance or the inner sense? Anyway, we'll put it in the. The inner balance is, is a hard math device for the. It's the one that goes on the iPhone. Right. Okay. And the other hard math ones either run on a PC or they have a handheld standalone. Yeah. So I find it so much more convenient. I basically keep it in my jacket pocket. I'll be on a train or somewhere like that, anywhere where I'd be, I've got a bit of free time and I'll just pop it on. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. There are also some free apps. So what we do usually is we don't advise people to buy those devices because we find their resonance frequency with our with our instruments. And then we give them one of three or four different ways of practicing at that pace. So MyComBeat has a free app for pacing. There's another one we like called Breathe to Relax with a number two in it. Uh -huh. These are free apps. Right. Or there's a there's a musical pacer that does cost some money, but it's very nice called Breath Sync. Breath Sync. And it has five different musical tracks that at your particular pace. So we have a separate CD for each person. And we let people choose the ones they want. It's ever the most convenient. It's really important that they something they can practice with. So this isn't biofeedback. This is once you've done the biofeedback, you're just giving them the timer exactly. basically in the app. Exactly. Yeah. And cool. some people just count. 
I can do it now. I've done it enough that I can get exactly to my resonance frequency pace just by counting. And then you become like a yogi. <laughs> Basically, you've just learned a lot quicker to do it. <laughs> yeah, I learned to do it, but yeah. I don't do it hours a day. So I'm not quite like a yogi. <laughs> I do it, do it 10 minutes a day. Is anyone in danger of overdoing this? Like if you did too much of it? Not that we know of. Not that we know of. And um, some people do get anxious when they try to do it. But usually that only takes a bit of practice till they get out of that. As far as we know, there doesn't seem to be any any ill effects of this, but um, people have worried about it and perhaps overstimulating the parasympathetic system, but it doesn't really do that. It just gets you better balance in the system. Right. Like you said, it, well, because I was just because you when you said it was like exercise, like kind of like hormesis in a, in a way. Right. I was just wondering, well, we can overdo exercise. Yeah, well, I mean, it, uh, the yogis are the ones who overdo it. They do They breathe many hours a day and they don't seem to be in bad shape from it. I don't know. There's tens of thousands of the M-Wave devices have been used, and I'm sure some people must overdo them, but I, I know of no reports of any really ill effects of it. There might be, but I don't know. Well, it sounds like a very simple approach you have, just covering slightly low and a slightly high, and then just finding the optimum by moving around, by testing. And One of those devices where it has the, the $607 ones, do you have a name? Are there any names of those, which those are coming out? Yeah, so the companies that make the two companies, they're not quite out yet. They're coming soon. One is J&J &J Engineering, which is, has a new device coming out in that range that'll do those four channels, J&J &J Engineering. But it's not a portable device. It's, it's a PC device. And the other company is called Thought Technology. That's a big biofeedback company. They've got a little device coming out that's a, a fingertip PPG, just a, a pulse amplitude. But it also measures temperature and skin conductance and uh, Bluetooth to a tablet. And then it has an accelerometer, so you can put it on your chest, and it'll also give you the breath measurement. So those two are in that range of price, and they're coming out fairly soon. I think the one is out, but not with all the channels yet, so I'm not sure where they are exactly. And then the other company that doesn't have a cheaper one yet is called Nexus. It's a Dutch software package, and it's... Um, so those are the expensive... Thought Technology and Nexus have very expensive systems. But they do many more things than that. They do all kinds of bells and whistles. J&J &J is a bit cheaper, doesn't have as many bells and whistles, but they also have a $3,000 device that measures many channels as well, but doesn't have as many displays. So probably for the consumers, none of these are of interest. I'd say right now, the consumer device that far is far and away the best for it, if one portability is the balance from hard math. They've mastered some things that nobody else has mastered. That system seems to work extremely well. I, I have yet to find someone that doesn't get an adequate pulse from their earlobe, whereas we used to get a lot of problems with pulses, and not everybody could get a good pulse. But that one... Right. The only problem I've ever had with it was, I think it was the M-Wave. I was living in Spain, very, very bright sunlight. And if I was in the sun, it wasn't working. I had to like be in some kind of shade. That's the only thing I ever came up with. Yeah, that's true for any of the PPG devices. That's I haven't really tried it in really bright sunlight, but... Those devices, but as I, we see, we're not sure that people need to spend the money on those things if they can kind of figure out what their pace is and then just practice on a regular basis. 20 minutes a day is ideal, but people will practice 10 minutes a day. So what are other ways? Like if I don't want to buy the device, do some physicians have these kits or some other kind of specialists? So I could basically go for a session. I don't know how long it takes to do this, like for an hour or something, and they would figure out my time, my perfect yeah, so there's a guy um, near you in St. Albans. Oh, great. 
the Open University who does it. Uh-huh. And there's people around who do this. Yeah. Uh, we do a lot of trainings. And so we have people all over the world. I was just in Rome training people from all over Europe. So there's a lot of people who do this. And it probably even more people who aren't very well trained, but who have the M-Wave devices who probably get close enough to be quite beneficial. For you, would it be worthwhile doing one session, even if you've been doing M-Wave, would it be worthwhile doing one session? It depends how extreme we are about these things. Well, you know what? It's very convincing when you see it on the screen. So even if you were able to get exactly the right pace yourself, seeing the actual physiology change is amazingly persuasive. And so with our, with our clinical clients, we take a baseline at normal breath rates and then show it to them again after they're done with the training. And it's very, they get emotional. I mean, they're seeing that their physiology really has changed. Their baseline physiology has changed dramatically over the course of six, seven weeks of, tra- of training. So that's one big advantage of it. And of course, you're cross-referencing lots of different data, right? So you're seeing the change across the whole body. Is there ever a case where you see the change in just the ECG and you don't see it rather the EKG and you don't see it in the other areas? Or is it good? like, are you cross-referencing that data or is it more just to make sure? Yeah, we do we cross-reference it with the skin temperature and skin conductance, fingertip temperature and skin conductance. Sometimes we don't get those. That's true. Sometimes they don't cross, they don't click. But, and that may just be they're being nervous in the session or something when we're measuring them. And some people get very small changes in heart rate variability, especially older people. So it's actually a very small quantitative change, but they seem to get the same clinical benefits. So as we get older, that those peaks and valleys definitely go down. And even if you're quite fit, and I'm a bicyclist. I ride 110 miles a week. I've been monitoring mine for 20 years. It's going down. Despite my best efforts, it's going down. Ah, even with all the training. So you're not able to get the same peaks anymore. Right. It used to be 15 valley to peak for me, 16. Now it's like 11. It's just little by little by little, it goes down. But the good news is it does, in terms of the clinical benefits, it doesn't seem to matter. As long as you're training at that right frequency, you seem to gain the clinical benefits of it. It doesn't necessarily mean you'll live forever, but it's, it seems to help with a lot of parameters. So that's similar to RMSSD, which declines over age as well. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly why it does. Exactly. And any of those indices would be measuring somewhat the same thing. Great. So you spoke about people doing this for a number of training sessions. What would be a typical, someone wanting to do this, you know, how long would it take? What's the typical protocol you'd put them through to, to learn when you take them on? We need one session to, to make sure we have the right frequency. Then we send them home with the practice techniques, whatever, any of the ones they want. And they come back the next week and we just make sure we've got everything right. Uh, because sometimes one week of practice will change it a half a beat and we want to just fine tune it. Some people are very sensitive to that, others are not. So then we, now the rest of the time is depending on what they're coming in for. I mean, so if they're athletes, we now start to use some sports psychology to integrate it into sports psychology. So I work with a lot of rhythmic gymnasts who get very nervous before they go on. Those are the ones with the hoops and the, the clubs and the hoops, that funny sport. These are little girls, basically, and they get nervous. I mean, they're quite young. Yeah, they're they're like 11, 12. Right. The coaches are Bulgarian usually. <laughs> so these are these cute little... They're quite tough on them. <laughs> yes, they're very tough. 
So we teach them the technique. They come back, make sure they have the technique. These kids are fantastic at it. They get giant peaks and valleys. They're so fit and, and good at this stuff. And then we sort of integrate it into the cues in their routine where they tend to get nervous and when, what sort of pairing it together with some sort of a sports psychology intervention. So that might take a few more sessions. So you, you're getting them to trigger it at just the right moment where they would normally get a bit more anxious, but you trigger it just before or something. Yeah. Exactly. And we have to work out how, how to do that. But for somebody who just wanted to do it for their own benefit, we probably could do it in two sessions. And as long as they keep practicing, they do very, very well. They, they keep practicing. And right. So they come back for a session of half an hour, an hour? like They come back for an hour. That's yeah. what our standard session is. But we usually talk about other things during that hour and hook them up. We also want to get a baseline again. And so we try to distract them and just get them breathing normally. One of the problems is if people don't breathe normally, you can't get an adequate baseline from them. So if they breathe slowly, it messes up their the RMSSD data. It messes up all their data. So suddenly they don't have any high-frequency data. So you have to make sure they're breathing at their normal breathing pace when, they're getting, when you're getting baseline or follow-up data. And then when they do the slow breathing, then that changes everything. Right. Just to make sure you're comparing to their... You're getting a real control, basically. Exactly. Yeah. This is how they are in real life. Or this is how they are just before they're going to compete. In any other example, yeah. So would you exactly. give them a like you you would give them a, a strap, a heart strap, like and monitor their athletic when they're actually doing it? Or we have we do do that. That, that would be just for research purposes. We don't do it for them. Uh, they're not usually allowed to have that in real competition anyway. Depends what depends who they are, but depends what we're doing. Another application that's not about feedback, but it's an interesting HRV technique is for detecting overtraining. So FC Barca has got Leo Messi every morning doing five minutes of heart rate variability measurements right in bed in the morning. And they monitor that. The, the training directors monitor that. When they see dips in heart rate variability, they decide that it's overtraining and they ease up his training protocol. So if he has a couple games in a week, they'll monitor that and try to see because overtraining generally produces poor performance. Absolutely. So that's catching on like crazy. The sports psychologist is so competitive. Right. If anybody gets anything, they all do it just immediately. It's like. Right. They see like it's a competitive advantage. So I was thinking, you said, oh, they're not allowed to wear those during competitions. Well, I can understand why, because if you're getting biofeedback, you, you could, it's kind of like cheating. When you got a, it, I don't know if it's cheating, but you've got a competitive advantage because. Could be. Yeah. yeah, could be. Yeah. Right. So what's the, what's the performance benefit of uh, being able to put yourself in this restful state? Say I'm just about to compete. Is there a study shown as a performance benefit or another benefit, or is it just kind of keeping their mental focus? Yeah, so it has to be for sports that are uh, single-action kind of sports, so uh, golfing, gymnastics, baseball hitting, cricket batting, possibly penalty kicks in football, um, things like that. For aerobic sports, your heart rates are, there's no parasympathetic at all. They're all, they're all in the aerobic range. Probably doesn't make much difference for those, although it gives them a little bit of a psychological edge. But usually I'm, it's hard to detect the benefits there. But for baseball hitting, one of my former students is a whole practice dealing with Major League Baseball players for hitting because you've got a split second to make up your mind. Ball's coming 95 miles an hour, and you have to be in exactly the right arousal level to be able to flow through that swing. 
So it's a kind of a way of getting an optimal flow state in things like that. Also in dancing and in music, there's a guy in London, uh, John Grisillier, who does it with uh, dancing and music, combines it with brainwave feedback and gets benefits for recitals and dance performances and things like that. Right. So it sounds like it's eliminating nerves in a bit. Like that's kind of the application. Well, that- trying to get people into the optimal, yeah, to try to get them from the from over aroused to the medium level. There's a famous curve called Yerkes Dotson Law, which is an inverted U shape. And the y-axis is performance, on the x-axis is arousal. And imagine upside down U. So people do the best in the middle. Too high or too low isn't good. So we don't, we don't want them to be too relaxed. They want them to be psyched. Yeah. But if they're over-aroused, then opposing muscles don't work well. They begin to get sort of choking mentality. They start thinking, what if I screw up? Things like that. Right. I don't know if you know about the science of flow and the books around flow. I can never pronounce the guy's name. It's very long and complex. Chick, chick, yeah, chick, chick, Somali. Right, right, right. Yeah, so probably we think that we're trying to go for the same thing. But it turns out, uh, I was just at, in this conference in Rome, there were a lot of sports psychologists. It was one of, the, one of the points they made, which is it's actually rare for athletes to be in the flow state during a performance. That's the definitely the ideal these are people dealing with Olympic athletes, okay, the, the most elite athletes in the world. And their experience is that maybe 10 or 15% of the time they actually get into that flow state. So now they're saying the important part is to not to go, if you don't get into the flow state, don't panic and go into the complete opposite quadrant where you're really choking completely, but sort of just work on getting through the routine in the best arousal you can. That's the first I'd actually heard that. So that was a pretty interesting. Right. So it's, that's more like limiting the downside, focusing on not getting the drop, the, the troughs. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there's a guy in London working with FC Chelsea doing that, a guy named Tim Harkness. And they, they, Chelsea's got a big room full of biofeedback equipment, expensive biofeedback equipment called the Mind Room. <laughs> and he works with all these multimillionaire players. Wow. <laughs> so... It's interesting to see. Great. So one of the things I've done with HeartMath, you can tell me if this fits with exactly what you said, but I've tried many things to get my my peak higher, of course, like get my, get my higher score. And I do think that what you're doing with your mind uh, seems... Now, for me personally, I've had biggest peaks and troughs over time by actually focusing on the, on the wave and the device. So just watching the wave go up and down, and, and then I breathe at a specific point in that curve, um, which I found works for me. I don't. Yeah. So first that's, I should have said that. So for some people, we don't use the pacing at all. Mm. Do exactly what you do. We just show them their heart rate and respiration. We have the advantage of one more channel for them to look at because you can see their breathing. So when you say one more channel, what would that be showing? It was showing a waveform of, of breathing, just a nice smooth waveform of the breathing rate. So when you breathe in, okay. it goes up. When you breathe down, it goes down. In addition to the heart. It could be smooth or jumpy and you want it to be smooth. Right. Gotcha. So we would say exactly the same thing for a certain percentage of people. Just make those two go up as high as they can and down. And then, and some people absolutely prefer that. They get their best results. I think partially because they're, it takes away any performance anxiety, right? You're just trying to match it yeah. as opposed to trying to breathe to a pacer. And some people really have a hard time breathing to a pacer. So we absolutely leave that as an opening. 
just do that kind of thing. And we do try to promote a mindful mental set as well. So we try to say, try to be self-observant, non-judgmentally observing your thoughts and breath as you do it. I think there's some real benefits to doing that. I'm not sure it shows up exactly in the heart rate patterns, as we said earlier. I think that remains to be seen. If it does, it's a pretty subtle difference. So if I started thinking about something stressful like work, some problem I had at work or whatever, would that tend to put me off? Or do you think that would have a minimal impact compared to breathing? As long as your breath, as long as your breath remained the same. Right. It probably would be very hard to see as long as your breath stayed exactly in that same pattern. Now, of course, it would, it would, it might interfere with your breath pattern too. Right. That's so, a, yeah. and then, then you'd see it for sure. But if you maintained your breath pattern exactly the same, you'd probably have a very hard time seeing very much in there. Whatever it is, is subtle. If there is something to that, it's probably quite subtle. What do you think about the connection between the brain and, and the breathing pattern in this case? By taking on this physiological breathing, do you think it will naturally affect the brain? I don't know if you've got this research related to that or put you in a different state of mind as well, as long as you maintain that. We're working on that now, and it's definitely, we're finding pretty dramatic effects. So 80% of the vagal fibers are afferent. They go from the heart to the brain. Only 20% of them are efferent from the brain to the heart. Uh, and this is a, something HeartMath has definitely pointed out, and, and we, we agree with them on this completely. And it's interesting. So the brain is listening to the heart more than the, brain, the heart is listening to the brain, which it some, seems counterintuitive. But they're both part of a central autonomic system that integrates frontal lobe and some limbic system activities into the brain function. So really, we, it's silly to s- treat them as separate systems. They're, they're an integrated system. And so it appears that this technique has a powerful effect on the vagal afferents going into the brain, right? So that the brain states are quite dramatically affected. So we recently have published one study, and we're just about to publish another, where we look at a brain wave called an evoked potential. It's a very short term for 800 milliseconds, just for, and you do it with repeated stimuli. So in this case, we take the filters off. Usually when they do EEG, you take the filter, you put a big filter on to get rid of that R wave and the heart rate because it messes up the EEG. But we take that off and let it mess it up. And you can see a very giant spike in the EEG for every heartbeat. Well, there's another wave that comes right after that, 250 milliseconds after. It appears to be the brain processing the information from the heart. And it's called a heart period evoked potential. And so we measured that. We measured it during positive emotions, negative emotions, baseline, and slow breathing, and resonance breathing. Resonance breathing had the, by far the biggest effect on it. Negative emotions did diminish the. It did diminish that wave. So if your brain is busy thinking about the worst thing that ever happened to you, it doesn't pay attention to your heartbeat anymore. But during the slow breathing, we got a dramatic improvement in this processing of the R wave. It also correlates with people's ability to be able to detect their, their heartbeat. So the German, there's some German studies that had people try to guess what their heart rates were. They were much better at it if they had that big wave at the 250 milliseconds. So yes, I think the, the other powerful part of this is that we're bombarding the parts of the brain that I think are beneficial to us with a very positive waveform. Goes up into the, into the uh, frontal cortex, and the part of the brain we think that controls depression, possibly, 
And this would be the, the basis for the claims of the of positive mental states coming from the, the heart rate itself. And I think there's a lot to that. We're, we're continuing to do more research on that. The results we got from both studies were very dramatic. So you mentioned a few use cases. What other use cases, what are the most beneficial use cases you've been working on over the years? And you feel like the best applications for it are? Yeah, so we mostly focus on autonomically mediated disorders, which are a, a giant amounts of medical disorders. So uh, that would be things like functional gastrointestinal disorders, like irritable bowel syndrome, reflux, abdominal pain, functional abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation. Those are massively familiar disorders, and they're greatly affected by the autonomic nervous system. There's actually a, an institute right there in London, Wingate Institute for, might be a good thing for one of your podcasts, actually where they actually look at esophageal pain thresholds with a nasal tube down the throat and how they're affected by autonomic function. And they're dramatically affected. And slow breathing changes the pain thresholds. It, it protects you from lowered pain thresholds. So there's a lot of, so that probably is the low hanging fruit in terms of applications. We see about 15 kids a week with functional abdominal pain from our children's hospital. And we get tremendous results with those kids. Is it therapeutic or is it just lowering the, the pain? No, it's therapeutic because the functional abdominal pain is actually caused by an imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. There's no pathology that's detected. See, these kids have all been scoped. There's nothing wrong they could find. But your gut needs a lot of parasympathetic input to function and if you take that away, and so the kids who get this are all internalizers. They're a little bit anxious kids. They're great kids. They're achievers, but they tend to be a little bit nervous. They're worried about getting into a good university in third grade, things like that. The famous A, insecurity, overachievers. Yeah. They're lovely kids to work with. We love them. So, uh, and they do very, very well. Uh, adults don't do as well, but they still do well. So you mentioned IBS as well. I think this is becoming a lot more common these days. You know, a lot of, a lot of people are getting these kind of conditions and gut issues. Is it therapeutic also for those areas? Because a lot of people talk about like, you know, probiotics, the microbiome, uh, gut lining damage, gluten intolerance, and all of these kind of things like related to these disorders. So I'm just wondering if you've had therapeutic benefits there. Yeah, the relationship between the biome is, is complicated. I don't think we know it, but it is definitely a parasympathetically connected system. So we're not quite sure whether we're correcting it or whether it corrects us. The problem is the probiotics. There was a uh, Cochrane review of probiotics. Apparently, they're not near enough probiotics to have much effect right. to really change the biome. But the biome definitely affects the brain, no doubt about that, and probably through the autonomic nervous system. In fact, we know it does through the vagal, vagal afferent system. So I think in the future, we will be pairing up with better techniques for improving the, uh, the flora of the gut with these kind of techniques that we use. To, to kind of come at it from two different angles. From both ways. I right. think that would be quite powerful. So you are seeing what permanent improvement in these cases like IBS and stuff. But they do they have to keep up the practice in order to maintain it? Uh, we, we thought they did, but then we did a follow-up and we asked them with more, more in-depth questioning. It turns out they just use the technique whenever they feel symptoms coming on. They don't actually continue to practice very often. Some kids do, but 
a lot of them said, oh, yeah, I keep on practicing. And we asked them, what does that mean? They said, well, whenever my stomach gurgles, <laughs> I do my slow. Okay. But, it, but sorry, that's a good thing. That, I mean, that's a good thing. That means that, like, there is something that you're fixing, basically. And so you don't have to constantly just maintain uh, the practice in order to maintain it. What we don't know yet is whether the kids who have these disorders are at much greater risk for adult IBS. A lot of studies show that. We don't know if we're preventing that risk, but we think we are. We've had some five to six year follow up with some kids and they seem to be doing just great at that point. So hopefully that'll move on through their lives to be quite beneficial. Are there areas you've looked at where it wasn't effective? You mentioned depression. Has it been effective in those kind of neurological things? Or I didn't think it would be, but my students wanted to try it. So, and I have, I have a lot of doctoral students. And we keep on consistently seeing beneficial effects on depression, probably through that vagal afferent system. So we are consistently seeing, and we're doing more studies, but I think every study so far has shown a beneficial effect on depression. Sometimes they're combined with psychotherapeutic techniques. Most of the studies they are. One study they weren't. They just did nothing but the biofeedback and they got improvements, but there was no control group in that study. But the other studies, they're comparing, they're just adding it to cognitive behavioral therapy or one of the mindfulness-based therapies. And it seems to be to add a, a definite benefit to it. And uh, in one study in China, they compared it just slow breathing without finding the right frequency to to finding the right frequency. And the frequency finding had better results than just slow breathing, even though that did help. So there are there's some indication that, that technique specifically might might be beneficial. It probably is not very helpful. It's no more helpful than palliative techniques for chronic pathology, like nerve pain, probably not very beneficial for people with uh, Crohn's or, or chronic IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. There, there's possibly an effect on the inflammatory system. There's a guy named Kevin Tracy that has traced this cholinergic immunological system. There's a lot of interest in that now, but we have not been able to show yet that it has any benefit on immunological function, but it, it may be. There's research coming out now that's indicating it might have an effect on one part of the immunological system. There's a vagal part of that system that may help. And if it does work, it would probably be that it would be helping the system from going bonkers. Sometimes people's immunological system turns on and doesn't turn off again. Those are autoimmune diseases. And nobody knows quite why that is, but it looks like like strengthening this vagal system might prevent that. That would be big. It might help to reset it. That there's a lot of there's some claims of that. I would say there's not the evidence is is just beginning now. So other disorders, uh, it doesn't seem to help for atrial fibrillation for some reason. That's kind of a, a nerve conduction of the heart itself. Pacemakers not involved. So in my age, all my friends are getting atrial fib. I've tried it on all of them. It doesn't seem to help very much. <laughs> so that's one of those. Um, and there's some, probably a number of physical disorders that it doesn't really help. If it's an autonomically mediated disorder, it seems to be quite effective. I guess what we haven't spoken about is people's emotional happiness and, and things like that. Is there any evidence that it improves satisfaction or, or happiness or Stops angry outbursts. Yeah, so uh, we have a couple studies that helping with urge control. The pathway back up into the brain seems to go through the places that, that have inhibitory neurological control of emotion. So we have some reason to believe that if you can improve those inhibitory circuits, that would help a lot with anxiety, help a lot with um, urge. We're doing one now with uh, with smoking 
people who are in smoking cessation programs to try and help them with their cravings. There's a food craving study that showed benefits for food craving. We're doing another one of those right now, actually. So there's some some reason to believe it might help with some of those kind of impulsive urge kinds of things. I've used it with clients with anger control, and they've reported good results, but there's no studies that I've seen. So it may be helpful for, for anger control, but we don't just do it alone. We always combine it with a lot of other techniques. So it, it's going to be hard to show that by itself it's a beneficial technique. HeartMath has all kinds of studies on just stress, self-reported stress, self-reported life satisfaction that always show benefits. But it's hard to know how much of that's placebo, how much of it is the actual technique. I think it helps people, but the studies are hard to do when it's self-reported. You have to put in a sham control of some sort to make them think they're getting something that they're not. It's hard to do those. Right. Yeah, that is hard. Have you seen anything like with cortisol levels? like something like that, hormonal? There's a little bit of data that in burned out cortisol patients with long periods of rehab, they do better. But there again, we don't just do that. We do it with uh, graded exercise, with activity management, with sleep management. Those are the things that all go together in these syndromes. And I would never just do the biofeedback. But but the biofeedback is the part they like the best. <laughs> they have some. There's benefits to that if they're actually interested in, like coming to the uh, the physician's office or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah, we say it's a Trojan horse technique. It gets people in. They, they don't resist it. So that's true for a lot of disorders. With, with veterans, we get them in by saying we're doing biofeedback before we do any psychotherapy with them. So, so, so the part you brought up about... Um, basically resisting impulses, right? So impulse shopping, I mean, we can think about lots of things we do on impulse. Personally, for performance at, at work, with my businesses and everything, I find that extremely important. Like basically in the morning, if I do some meditation, perhaps do some heart math, I do, I do feel more in control and I'm less likely to work on something that is a waste of time for a couple of hours rather than exactly the right thing that was going to bring the best results. So I find it from a performance perspective to be very, very important. I was just wondering how you would compare, there's a big trend in meditation. So I also have a device which I can use. I don't know if you've seen this, the Muse. It's an ECG, you place it on your head and it tells you how calm you are in terms of alpha waves and so on. So I've used both and um, I'm not sure if, sometimes I'm wondering which one shall I do today or which one shall I do this morning? Um, I'm not exactly sure which one would be the most beneficial. So I'm just wondering if you have any perspective on it or like the connections, if it's worth doing both or like one you know, one day or one the other day? Well, if you if you hook them both up, I think you would see that your optimal alpha state will come very quickly when you're in resonance frequency, which to me is much easier to do. But but I'm interested in your feedback on it. Do you, do you think the feedback on the on the EEG is as beneficial to you as the as on the M wave? I feel like it's different, honestly, because um with the N wave, well, I'm actually using the inner balance uh, now. I did use the M wave before. With the that one, I would I tested meditating. Okay, like doing mindfulness meditation, and I didn't get good scores in in the HeartMath device. However, I definitely use breathing when I'm using the Alpha Wave thing, and it definitely does help. So found that interesting. And I've I've heard that from other people. Just other people using this. If if they use their standard meditation, they don't tend to do well on the HeartMath. No, absolutely right, and it's because you're not breathing in the low ranges with that. What what is your standard meditation? Is it a mantra based one? I mean, I've actually tried different ones. I've tried the mantra. I find they're just the breathing mindfulness, but it's, I think the actually the worst, I would say mantra is worse. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So mantra, we, we get nothing from mantra people. 
even with years and years of mantra work, that it doesn't tend to train their breath. We did uh, transcendental meditation, like 30-year meditators. And we were looking at brain scans at the same time. They had dramatic effect on their brain scans. Their mantras really affect their amygdala a lot. But we saw no effect on their breathing whatsoever, which is sort of good for the scanner because if you change your breath, it changes the bold response in the fMRI, which is an artifact. And then suddenly you've got, you don't know what the heck you're measuring. But in breath meditators, it just seems to vary a lot. <clears throat> so some of them do breathe in the resonance range, so they absolutely get both going together. But no, so the, the muse will definitely give you, uh, teach you how to get into an alpha state independent of breath. Those are two separate things. So it's interesting that you say that. To me, though, if I hook myself up to an EEG, it's so much easier for me to get into alpha by just breathing slowly than it is by paying attention to the EEG feedback that I don't bother with it. Right, because you, uh, so. you potentially learn. Uh, I'd love to actually run them both, but I need two phones because they both interface with the iPhone and you can only run on one app at, this, at a time, unfortunately. Oh. So I have to oh. get an additional phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be interesting to see how that works out. Yeah. Oh, so the last thing is like, we, we did touch on it just before the interview was uh, think, like, there's a lot of people talking about um, gratitude types of meditation and uh, empathy and that kind of thing. And that having an, an impact, how do you feel like connects or not, or doesn't connect with? I think it only mildly connects, but I think it's an independent, important thing to do. So in our clinical training, we start with about feedback and we end up with mindfulness-based techniques. That's pretty much all we do. We don't do cognitive behavioral therapy at all anymore. So the kind we like is called acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, but it's another one of many. And it has a strong compassionate meditation, a strong mindfulness component. I think most of those have the same kind of strong component. So I think it's important for your brain functioning to learn those things. It doesn't seem to have much impact on the heart rate variability, as we were saying before. I don't, I don't see a ton of an impact on the heart rate variability, and that's mainly because breath is such a dominant factor in what we're seeing on that screen. So as we get more sophisticated, we might be able to tease out some nonlinear components or something that, once your brain is in a mindful state, will then it should show up somewhere. I think right now it's like walking into a room full of people talking loudly and trying to hear someone across the room. It's a whisper. Right. It's hard to pick it out because it's it's a small component in the overall picture of heart rate. Uh, but certainly there's a lot of evidence now from brain scanning type techniques and EEG techniques that you that people do benefit from repeated. It's a skill. It's very important to know it's a skill. And the more you practice that, those mindfulness, compassion, and forgiveness type skills. The evidence is, is strong that, for instance, forgiveness produces beneficial health outcomes, no doubt about it, and so does compassion. Those are things that we know are beneficial in some ways and possibly, probably somewhat independent channels. Well, great. Well, what's coming next? I mean, you mentioned a few things. So potentially, like in the future, are there anything, are there any things you're looking forward to in this area or like uh, directions you're moving in? You mentioned a couple of things over, over the period. Yeah, well, so I have, a, I have a slew of students, so we're all doing this kind of research. So we, we generally focus on maybe three things. One is uh, just outcome data from heart rate variability biofeedback. We keep on doing studies and trying to see what it works for. And we've got a bunch of those going. So we're always looking at how does it work compared to other techniques and compared to other controls. Uh, and we tend to get very positive results out of that. I, I just published a, a lit review on that, and we had quite a number of applications where it looks like it works. 
We don't have much big funding, so we have to do little small studies. Big Pharma is not too interested in this technique, as you might guess, as skills, not pills is our motto, right? So, <clears throat> so and then the second one is mechanisms. So we sort of made reference to how does it work? What, what are the other mechanisms here? And there's a whole bunch of new stuff on that. And there's some, one of our colleagues, Vishilo, the, the Russian guy, is looking at rhythms in the very low frequency range and seeing what happens to the blood pressure systems when you breathe at like three per minute. And there's some really interesting data coming out on that. Uh, so we're trying to understand both psychological and physiological mechanisms of why this works. What, how does it work? We're going to do many, many more studies and looking at how the brain's affected. And then the third one is, um, I've sort of been drag kicking and screaming into this by my students, but looking at yoga and trying to standardize yoga and see what are the mechanisms by which yoga works. So now the other mechanism that I think is important, but we have not been able to pin down is the postures. So we know the pranayama component of yoga is very important. That's what we study. And it's real easy to study that. But when we look at the postures, the body was evolved for movement. So there are massive afferent pathways from muscles back to the brain. And we're quite interested in like, what are those pathways and how does the movement complement the breathing? You know, the thousands of years of look, looking at movement, breathing, complementarity, there's probably something to it. But it's very hard to study that. And it's very hard to figure out how to study those afferent uh, muscle pathways. It, there's no, not a good way to study it non-invasively. So that's an issue. So but the, those are. But uh, we're doing yoga for IBS right now. We're doing a yoga study for IBS, seeing how much heart rate variability changes. Um, so these are students who are very proficient in yoga. They were instructors, and they beat me up until I let them do presentation <laughs> on yoga. <laughs> there's out of sorted other topics that come up. There's there's a lot of parametric things we don't know, like how about inhalation exhalation ratio? Is it important to breathe forty percent in, sixty percent out? That's, a, that's what everyone thinks, but now there's one study that shows, no, that's not very important. 50-50 is okay. Another study showed 40-60 is better. So we want to look at that. We want to look at laying down versus sitting up. So these are little studies we do, kind of parametric studies, so the students can get a scientific poster out of it, and we present it at a meeting. And if it comes out, then we try to publish it. But these are things that really nobody studied, and we really need to know those things. Tight-fitting clothing. So it looks like women who wear very tight-fitting waists don't breathe diaphragmatically at all, and it looks like that has a detrimental effect on them. This is—I mean, these are useful things. You know, you find the answers to these, you can improve a whole bunch of lives. Quite right, right. Mass market kind of lives. So I came across you first in a in a presentation, a video presentation. I was just wondering, like, what are the best ways to learn more about you and your work? Are there are there presentations you got up online? Do you, are you on Twitter? Do you have a website? Where is where's the best place to connect with you? Yeah, we have some YouTubes out there. I I, I avoid Twitter like the plague. One of my students, Mark Stern, put a, did a very nice YouTube explaining heart rate variability biofeedback. It's fairly recent, and so if you just Google Mark Stern. HRV BSC, Biofeedback Society of California. It's the first one that pops up because it's got a long address. And he kind of goes through with and explains how the biofeedback works, some of the stuff we've been talking about. There are websites. Um, the, one, the one you saw probably was from Thought Technology has done it so that they keep on doing things with me and putting them up there. Um, my website, I'm having, I have a hard time keeping it recent. 
but there's a lot of stuff from the uh, Association for Applied Biofeedback, Psychophysiology and Biofeedback, AAPB. So we're just coming out with another magazine, that a whole magazine on all the articles on HRV. And they tend to be lower level, not quite as scientific. Then we publish things in, in regular journals all the time. So HeartMath has a lot of stuff too. So, you know, a lot of their stuff is really good. Great. So I'll put everything in, all of that in the show notes. Is there anyone besides yourself? You've mentioned a few people already, but is there anyone else you'd recommend that people look up to learn more as well? Uh, well, my colleague, Paul Lehrer, L-E-H-R-E-R, and we, we've been co-conspirators in this for years and years and years. So everything one of us does, we share with the other one. And, uh, and he's got a number of students who are doing it in different, different areas. I've got a number of students, too, that are out there. So it just depends on what area you're interested in. But um, I think those are probably the major sources. There's a woman named Ina Kazan, K-A-Z-A-N, in Boston, who published a book of combining biofeedback with mindfulness techniques. That's a really nice book. I helped um, review it for the for the publisher, and she did a very nice job in that book. And she's she's using our techniques pretty much. She's taken our workshops, but she's quite an accomplished mindfulness based therapist, and she put that all together in a book that she's published. That sounds great. Thank you for that. So, just a little bit about about you and how you approach data in your life. I'm just wondering if, if there's any biomarkers or anything you track. Could be HRV, could be other things that you track in your life and kind of use it to make decisions or just to keep track of where you are personally. Well, I do check HRV, but it's quite discouraging since it goes down as I get older. <laughs> I just do it. I do it sometimes because I'm. I'm. It's easy just to hook myself up. I do the breathing on my own. I don't need any devices anymore to do it, so I do the breathing myself. I have a heart rate monitor for my bicycling, uh, which is a little bit useful, actually. By now, I know exactly which hills produce which heart rates, so I actually don't bother with it a lot of times. I know exactly where I, I know exactly where my heart rate is from my bicycling. I monitor my blood pressure regularly, just because it's a risk with aging. Uh, but that's all I do. I don't monitor any other biomarkers. I, I suppose I could do overtraining, but I don't think I'm in danger of overtraining. So <laughs> possibly, possibly I do. And sometimes on Saturday, I ride with a group that pushes me too far. I probably would have lower heart variability on Sunday morning, but I know that because I feel crappy. <laughs> <laughs> There's just some situations we've talked a lot about HRV on the show, as you've probably seen. And um, there's some situations where I find I'll have a low HRV in the morning and I feel okay. And it'll hit me probably at lunch or a little bit later. So I'll have four in the morning. I was okay. And my HRV says, you're not okay. <laughs> there's a few times like that. It's been a, it's been a, um, how would you say a forerunning signal for me? Yeah, because what it's picking up is vagal withdrawal, right? So one of the implications of this is what makes people have ill effects unless they're in war or something is not sympathetic overactivation as much as vagal withdrawal. So the minute you get up and you have a big busy day of stressful things in front of you, you don't get a big surge of sympathetic activity usually. And maybe during a presentation you might, but what happens is your break goes off. So your vagal break is off. And if it's off for about 90 minutes, your body doesn't like that. And so it'll it'll show up in whatever the most vulnerable body system you have is. So for the, for the gut problems, it shows up in gut problems for those people. But if you if you have like a trigger point, it'll show up in trigger point pain. Or if you have performance issues, it'll show up with you know not feeling sharp in your performance. So I think that's what you're picking up. 
So probably it would be a good idea if you wake up with that to do some biofeedback, try to get yourself back on track or break up, break up the morning sometime with 10 minutes of the, of slow breathing, uh, maybe combine some alpha and, and just do that as a middle, middle of the day break is really powerful. So that'll, that'll put you back in balance. And then you got another 90 minutes of messing it up again before it'll start to affect you again. 90 minutes is a total guess, but that's what we say. Yeah. That's great. Thanks. Uh, some very useful tactics there and to keep me performing. Just the last question here. What would be your number one recommendation for people to you if they want to use data in some way in their life to improve their health? What would be the one way you would recommend doing that? Well, you could from the inner uh, inner balance actually is has a uh, it's tricky, but you can get heart rate variability data out of it. So if you wanted to monitor your heart rate variability on a daily basis, it probably would be interesting to some people. It's a lot of trouble. There's a free software program that you can load it into called Kubios, K-U-B-I-O-S-H-R-V. It's a Finnish program. It's free. You can download it on your PC, K-U-B-I-O-S. And then you can actually export heart math data or any other device data to that, and it'll give you a for resting level data. It'll give you actually a very respectable heart rate variability profile with all the measures we talked about and many more. So if somebody was really into it, they could do that on a regular basis. It's a little tricky how to get the inner balance to output that data. You've got to, you have to, you have to write to Roland McGrady and he'll give you a little, you have to load something to do it. It's not meant for that, but it can do it. Or if you did one of the other devices would do it easily. Um, that might be something that would be worth keeping track of. Although I think really in the long run, just how you feel, you know what's going on. And if you know what's going on and you just intervene properly, you'll probably be just as well off. Yeah. Self-awareness. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I found this like really interesting. There were some things I wasn't expecting. The yogis, great story, you know, background as to how, you know, you got into this and, and how that kind of drew the thousand year old knowledge. It was an input into all of this. So thank you so much for your time. It's been a lot of fun. Okay. That's great. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.